0: Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2019. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, please call 1 800 488 2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon.
1: And God's people said, Amen. Let us worship the Triune God. The Lord is risen. O oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing psalms to him, talk of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face forevermore. Remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. Lift up your hearts. We lift Almighty God, you are wisdom and there is no knowledge, no understanding, no truth, no rationality, no strength apart from you. By your wisdom, you founded the earth and by your understanding, you established the heavens. By your knowledge, the depths were broken up and the clouds dropped down their dew. When you utter your voice, the heavens pour down. You make the lightning for the rain. You bring the wind out of your treasuries. You shake the heavens and the earth. In your hand is the life of every living thing, the breath of all mankind. If you tear something down, it cannot be rebuilt. If you imprison a man, no one can release him. If you withhold the rain, everything dries up. With you is all strength and prudence. The deceived and the deceiver both belong to you. You make fools of judges. You deprive the trusted ones of their speech. You take away the discernment of elders you disarm the mighty, you make nations great and you destroy them, you cause the great men of the world to grope in the dark, to stagger like drunken men, you alone are wise, you alone are true, all things change and fade away, but you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and so we worship you now, in the name of Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, world without end, and amen. There are relatively few things the Bible associates with putting people in danger of the devil. But if the Bible says that certain things can invite the devil to mess with your life, you really ought to sit up and take notice. One of those things is letting the sun go down on your wrath. Ephesians 4 says, be ye angry and sin not, let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Remember that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. He doesn't show up on your doorstep dressed for Halloween. He shows up justifying your anger. The devil is the friendly accountant who doesn't mind going over the offenses again, adding up your good deeds in one column and their thoughtless words and actions in the other. The devil is a friend with a cup of tea willing to sit up late listening to you, going over what he said, what he did, asking you to repeat the particularly painful parts one more time. Going to bed angry is like going to bed with your front door wide open, like an open invitation to thieves. It's like leaving raw meat out on the counter all night long. It's not safe, it's inviting trouble. Remember in the parable of the field, The enemy came while the man slept and sowed tares among the wheat. And the next morning, morning you wouldn't notice right away. Bitterness takes root before anything obvious has happened, like rot in the meat, like cancer in the bones. It's not always possible to agree on something, and sometimes there really is something that needs to be addressed. But when you've done everything you can today you need to put the matter in the Lord's keeping. Put your grievances and hurt in the Lord's strong box. If you keep the matter with you, you're inviting the devil in. But if you let the Lord keep it, the Lord will keep the devil out. So, is it something your dad or mom did or said? Your husband, your wife, your boss, Did a deal go south with someone in this room? Did a friendship go sour? Surrender it to the Lord now. He knows exactly what happened. Let him take it from here. Psalm 71 says, In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness and cause me to escape. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be my strong refuge to which I may resort continually. You have given the commandment to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Father, we confess that we have harbored grievances, grudges, and anger, and in so doing, we have invited the devil into our hearts and homes. We have given in to the temptation to remember sins that we promised to forgive. We have reviewed past wrongs as though we were looking through an old photo album. We have nursed small and large bitterness, and we have called it caring about justice or just telling the truth or just having a good memory. Father, forgive us for keeping track of wrongs, of remembering wrongs, especially since you have forgiven us far more than has ever been done to us. Father, we also confess that we have held on to grievances because we don't trust you to take care of them so please forgive us for that as well. We surrender everything to you and trust you with it. If there are things that need to be addressed, help us to address them in the peace that only comes by letting you keep the wrongs for us instead of us trying to keep them ourselves. Father, we know that we live in a dark world and so much of the darkness is the black hole of unforgiven sin. We want to be light in this world, so help us to confess our sins honestly to you now so that we may actually be a blessing to our neighbor. And so we confess our individual sins to you now. Selah. We ask all this in the strong name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Psalm 106 says, praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can declare all his praise? Blessed are those who keep justice and he who does righteousness at all times. People of God, God loves to forgive. He's eager to forgive. He's not reluctant at all. He's not thinking about it for a little while. This is because Jesus died and rose again for every sin that would ever be committed, needing forgiveness. The debt is already paid in full. Therefore, I declare to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ.
0: Be God. The text is from Exodus chapter 21, starting at verse 22. These are the words of God. If men strive and hurt a woman with child, so that her fruit depart from her, and yet no mischief follow, He shall be surely punished, according as the woman's husband will lay upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. And if any mischief follow, then thou shalt give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Our Father and God, I pray that your spirit would be present with us here today, helping us to understand this passage from your law. I pray that we would understand it in the light of the gospel and I pray that we'd understand it all the way down. I pray that you'd grant us this uh, grace because we ask for it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I want to speak to you this morning about what it means to be genuinely pro-life, what it means to be pro-life all the way through, top to bottom, front to back, side to side. What does it mean to be genuinely pro-life? This is a political term, and I want to tie it in by the end of the message to, to uh, the gospel. What, what, what relationship does this quote-unquote political issue have to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? Christians have spent a lot of time uh, in, in circles that where where pro-life, the the phrase pro-life is a good phrase. Those Christians who've spent a lot of time in these circles know that we are pro-life and know that being pro-life is a good thing, and that almost goes without saying. And we often have some of the basic arguments down, but frequently the basic arguments are arguments from science or medicine, biology, that sort of thing. We have some of the basic arguments down, but we need to make sure that we have the true foundation down as well. What is the genuine issue here? What are we actually talking about? That means, as you should already instinctively know, we have to ground our convictions on this subject, on the scriptures that have been given to us by God. So we have to look at a particular passage as the, as the text before us this morning, but we also have to, to go even deeper than that and just uh, address the fact of Scripture itself, the, the, the reality of a word from God itself, and then see how it, how it ties in with what we as a, a nation are doing and with uh, an issue like this one. Now let's just summarize the law quickly. In this law that the children of Israel were given, we can readily see the parity of the law. We can see the parity that scripture grants to an unborn child and a fully adult citizen of Israel. This is part of Israel's case law system. And so a particular scenario is described from which we are called to derive the principle of justice so that we might apply it in other comparable situations. That's how case law works. You have a situation, and, and responsible judges are supposed to be able to look at that situation, and when they have a comparable situation later, they extract the principle of justice and apply it to the new situation. It's not a lo- this is not a law that says, thou shalt not commit abortion. All right? Th- that is not how the law works. It gives us a particular scenario, and we're supposed to read and understand that scenario. So here it is. If two men are fighting, and if they careen into a pregnant woman, such that she gives birth prematurely, but the child is all right, then the guilty party is fined what the husband determines and what the judges allow. You see that in verse 23. That's interesting. It says two men are fighting, and it's plural, and they collide into a woman, and then it becomes singular. There's They're assuming that there's a guilty party in the fight, that that someone is responsible for it or responsible for colliding with the pregnant woman. So it goes from plural to singular. And so if the child is born prematurely, but uh, it's nothing more than a scare, uh, then there is a fine levied. So the guilty party is fined what the husband determines and what the judges allow. We see that in verse 22. In this case, the guilty party or the responsible party is simply fined for having delivered such a scare. But if there's harm, and it's phrased here in the text, if mischief follow, if there's no mischief, if the child's all right, then there's simply a fine. If there is harm, if mischief follow, then the penalty that is exacted is precisely the same as the penalty that's exacted when harm is done to fully grown adults. So you can see in Leviticus 24, 17 through 20 or Deuteronomy 19, 17 through 21 and the Lord refers to this in Matthew 5, 38. Uh, The the law of Israel says when harm is done, when one Israelite harms another, uh, the the retributive justice has to be strict. It has to be mediated by the judge but it's eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. Now let me uh, say one other thing while while we're here. In the Lord's um, statement of this, he is saying, you've heard that it was said, right? And then he uh, gives another reading on this. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, um, uh, burn for burn, that, that sort of thing was given by God through Moses to the magistrate to put an end to vigilante justice. So it used to be What would happen in sort of the state of nature or in a tribal society or when all you had running around the countryside were Hatfields and McCoys is that somebody would knock out a tooth and it would be a life for a tooth. It'd be a life for an eye and then it'd be five lives for a life and then it'd be ten lives for five lives. The whole thing would just escalate. And so you can see the law of Moses being imposed on a society where if someone did, har- uh, someone did harm to someone in your tribe, there was a blood avenger, and the blood avenger would go and get that guy, and the whole thing would tend to escalate. This is why Moses established cities of refuge. If there was an accidental killing, the the person, uh, a manslaughter situation, a person could flee to the city of refuge and to be safe from the blood avenger. So, what God is doing is He's establishing in Old Testament Israel. He's putting brakes on a system of personal vengeance. All right? And the way you do that is, it says in Ecclesiastes, where, where justice is not speedily executed upon the criminal, there the heart of man is filled to do evil. So what, if, you, if you want to put a damper on vigilante justice, people taking the law into their own hands, the magistrate has to be strict. The magistrate has to come in and say, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. That was the system. And what happens is that when this law in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, when that law was given, it was was given in order to retard or interfere with personal vengeance. That's That's the whole point. And then by the time of Jesus, people are quoting that law as they do down to this day, well, I punched him because he punched me, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. They're quoting it as a way of justifying personal vengeance, right? So so Jesus is not setting aside the law as it was intended. Jesus upholds the law. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, but he does stand against the idea of vigilante justice, or I'll get him because he deserves it. He got me. So The the central point here is that eye for eye, tooth for tooth is the penalty that the civil magistrate exacts when one person harms another person, and we see in this law that the unborn child has the full protection of the law in this regard. The unborn child in Mosaic Israel was as protected as anybody else. The unborn child is as protected as anybody else. In other words, the unborn child is treated as having equal dignity, equal rights, with all the rest of us, that's that's the import of this law from Exodus 21. Some might want to argue, then uh, some might want to argue that this is talking about the possible harm done to the woman if two men are fighting and they collide with a woman and, and hurt her. But this is not consistent with the language of the law at all, or or with the scenario as it's described. If it were dealing with whatever harm the woman suffered, then the fact of her being pregnant would be entirely irrelevant. So if it's simply uh, a woman, a bystander who's harmed, then why bring up the fact that she's pregnant? Why, why if if two men are fighting and they collide into a a, a redhead, um, well, you'd say, what's that doing there? What's what's the point of that? The point of it, it's plainly talking about harm done to the baby. This is plainly talking about, contextually, the, the only fair way to read it is talking about harm done to the baby, and the baby has full, equal rights. The baby is an Israelite. The baby is a child of Israel. Now, this is not something that we find tucked away in an odd corner of the Old Testament. No, God's word is consistent on this subject throughout. When a child is being mysteriously formed in the womb, God is the one doing it. We uh, read that in Psalm 139, 13. We see that in Jeremiah 1:5. We see it in Job 31, 15. When, when a child is being formed in the womb, this is a marvel, and God is the one performing the marvel. The children of the covenant are children of the Lord from the moment they began to exist. Psalm 22, verse 10. When Mary came to visit Elizabeth, John the Baptist rejoiced over it in utero. We see that in Luke 1, 41 through 44. And this was not a quaint superstition uh, from the hill country of Judea, but it's rather what Elizabeth said when she was filled with the Holy Spirit. So when her child leapt in her womb, she was not just reading tea leaves or reading an omen and showing how superstitious she, Elizabeth, was. It says explicitly in the text that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she declared the truth. And so we come to the fundamental pro-life passage, which would be Exodus 20, verse 13, thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit murder. And we, incidentally, um, you don't, those, those who are absolutists on um, capital punishment and war, you know, pacifist Christians who say thou shalt not kill, um, the, context, the context, basically, of Exodus in just a chapter away, you have the death penalty required for certain offenses. It's clearly talking about murder. You shall not take a human life without a trial. You shall not take a human life without that person forfeiting their right to life through their own behavior. So thou shalt not kill. This is a law that encompasses all of us. Now there's something else going on though. Because you you have to do more than understand what uh, let 's say you had a christian community let 's say our Christian community grew and flourished to such that, such that we um, had we 're well, we're almost there now that we were the size of a small town, and then someone doesn 't know and they say um, I've, I've gotten, we've gotten uh, pregnant. What do we do? Does the, the, what does the Bible allow for us? We could have an internal discussion within the Christian faith and just say, well, this is what the Bible teaches and explain to people, this is what we do. This is how we approach it. But we're not living in that place now. We're living in a culture, in a time where abortion is not only uh, permitted, but it's applauded. We we live in a time where people are shouting their abortion. We are living in a time when people say, no, this is just a fundamental constitutional rights issue. That means we are living in the midst of a people who differ with us profoundly on this issue. So how do we understand that difference? How does that difference arise? How do we understand it, and how do we interact with people who differ with us on this? Well, let me explain that difference. We have to deal with the brute fact of Scripture. We're not just dealing with this passage says this, but we have to deal with the brute fact of Scripture. So there are a number of scriptural passages that outline the Christian position on this issue. But there's an underlying issue, a deeper issue, and that is the mere fact of Scripture, the mere fact of an authoritative word from outside the human race, a word that we cannot alter, abolish, modify, amend, or repeal. God speaks to us, and he speaks to us from the heaven of heavens. His word simply is, and we can't get up a petition to do something about it. God speaks from heaven. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He is the Lord of all. He governs every last thing, and he has told us, you may not do this thing. This is something I do not want you to do. God speaks to us. His word is the ultimate truth. His word simply is. His word is an absolute word. We may accept it or reject it. If we accept it, we shall be saved by it. Saved, cleansed, forgiven, totally put right with him by that word and just incidentally, I want to mention this on the way, we're going to be saved, forgiven, cleansed by that word, even if you've had an abortion, even if you've done awful things that you now repudiate, even though you reject it all, rejecting it is not the same thing as being forgiven for it. You reject it, but you still need to be cleansed. God offers to cleanse from outside this system by his authoritative gospel word. And so this is not, I'm not, by preaching on, this I do not intend to resurrect a sense of condemnation for anybody who's had an abortion. If you've had an abortion and you have come to Christ, you have been forgiven for that as much as for anything else. So that's, that, that's the fundamental thing. And this is because God's absolute word is the word that declares the forgiveness. When the assurance of pardon is uttered in the church service here, that's, that is... Uh, ministers of the gospel, declaring the absolute word, it's as authoritative as anything else. So when when God says, thou shalt not kill, he said that to David, and then David murdered the uh, husband of Bathsheba, and God's word of forgiveness was as absolute as the prohibition was, all right? So remember remember that. So his word is absolute. If we accept it, we are cleansed by it, If we accept it, we shall be saved by it because his word includes at its center the glorious message of Jesus crucified and Jesus risen. If we reject his absolute word, then we shall be judged by that word that we rejected. If we accept his word, we will be accepted in Christ. If If we reject his word, we are rejecting the only possible thing that would save us. Not on the menu is the option of getting the word to go away and bother somebody else. That's not on the menu. The word of God confronts every man. The word of God confronts every woman. The word of God confronts every child. The word of God is present among us. So the word of God, we can't say, I just don't want to deal with these things. I don't want to accept it or reject it. No, you you must. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Uh, as the children of Israel did in the wilderness. If you hear his word, you must either accept or reject. It's either palm up or palm out. It's either accept or reject. If you hear his word and you accept it, there's a gospel word in it. If you reject his word, there is no gospel because you're, you're turning away from gospel. So we can't ask the word to go away and bother somebody else. And the ultimate fact of a transcendental word leads directly to the next point. And that point is, what is a person? What is a person? As we are talking to non-believers, whether friends, family, co-workers, and so on, and we come to discuss this issue, we soon discover that we certainly differ on what should be done. Do you think abortion should be legal? and you say no, and they say yes. So you're having a water-cooler discussion at work, or you're talking to extended family at Thanksgiving, and they're not believers, or they come from some progressive wing of the church, and they say, well, I think abortion should be allowed in certain circumstances, uh, and so on. So you certainly differ on what should be done. You certainly differ on what should be allowed. You differ on what should be against the law. We believe that all human abortion needs to be outlawed. We believe that all human abortion needs to be outlawed. They want to keep abortion legal, although different unbelievers might go for various restrictions on abortion at different places and times. So some, some, some unbelievers might say, well, I, I don't want to outlaw morning after pills, but I, I am in favor of restrictions on partial birth abortion, or I'm, I'm favorable toward limiting uh, abortions in the third trimester, that sort of thing. So, but at the root, we are, there's a fundamental difference. This is the content of our disagreement. But let's go a step further, and, and we're we going to be able to see where the real difference lies. Where is the real difference? When we ask, what is a person to two different group, these two different groups of people, we give, we see them give different answers. What is a person? But why do they give different answers? The different answers arise from the fact that we are appealing to two different legal codes of two different religions. We're appealing to the, to the legal code, the word, of two different gods. One is the religion of man, and the god is demos, which is the Greek word for the people. The, relig- the god of the system is demos, the people. The other is the religion of Christianity, and the god of that system is Jehovah, the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're appealing to the word of Jehovah, and they are appealing to the word of man, Demos. For the non-believer, for a non-believer, a human being need not be a person. A human being need not be a person. If you, so if you go to biology, if you go to medical science and say, genetically, the chromosomes, this is a human, this is a human being, and we can tell what height they're going to be, and we're gonna, we can tell what their eye color would be, and this is a, this is a human being. Honest pro Abortion advocates will say yes. I know it's a human being. Yes. I I know this Embryo is human the issue is whether it's a person the issue is whether it's a person or not And that is an accurate assessment of what the issue is For the non-believer a human being need not be a person For the believer, the unborn child, began to bear the image of his or her creator the moment the sperm penetrated the cellular wall of the egg. We have the image of God born by one cell, the image of God born by four cells, the image of God born by a zygote, the image of God born by a fully grown human. Put another way, no one is advocating the abortion of persons. No one is advocating the abortion of persons, but what is a person? For Christians, all human beings bear the image of God, and all of them, therefore, all of them, are persons. We worship a God who defines personhood this way. They believe, following the existentialists, that the material world is just chaotic matter in motion, and that it is meaningless and absurd. So Jean-Paul Sartre, one of the founders of the existentialist movement, said, without an infinite reference point, every finite point is absurd. Now, that's, that's true. Without an infinite reference point, every finite point is absurd. And he was an atheist. There is no infinite reference point. Therefore, every material point in the universe is an absurdity. If it is to have meaning, it must have meaning imposed on it. It must have meaning imposed on it by the person making a choice. So um, it remains that way, that, that created order, well, not created order, that chaotic order, remains that way, meaningless and absurd until meaning is imposed on it by choice. Whose choice? And the answer is the choice of, who, of whoever can make that choice stick. All right, so everything is absurd, you make your own meaning. Everything is absurd. You make your own meaning. And if you can't make your own meaning, well, then it doesn't have any meaning. If you don't make it stick, it doesn't. So a debate between a secularist and a Christian over abortion is comparable in this respect to a debate between a Muslim and a Christian over the lawfulness of eating bacon. All right, so I'm talking to a Muslim and the Quran forbids bacon and I'm a Christian and Jesus declared all foods clean. We are, we are appealing to do two different law orders. We're appealing to two different law orders. And that means we get different answers. In order to resolve the dispute, the two parties appeal to two different authorities. The issue is therefore irreducibly a religious one. The, issue of the, the whole pro-life issue is a religious issue because we're, we're appealing to two different authoritative words. It has, to be, it has to be settled by an appeal to the word of God. But who is God? We, we, there, this is just the ultimate impasse. There's no way to resolve this without resorting to an authoritative word. But who has the right to issue the authoritative word? word this is an irreconcilable difference this is a chasm that we can't jump over as elijah said on mount carmel if baal is god follow him if jehovah is god if god is god follow him you can't follow both and you can't just stand there you can't follow both and you can't just stand there so the issue is who defines a person who gets to define a person And what are the consequences of appealing to different authorities like this? When we define according to the law of a particular god, or lowercase g, god, then the definition is going to reflect the character of the god of the system. We become like what we worship. In Psalm 115, it says their idols have eyes but they can't see, noses they can't smell, ears they can't hear. Those that make them are like unto them we begin to conform to the image of the God we worship. This is why when Jesus appears, we're going to become like him, John says, because we're going to see him as he is. When we finally see him fully, we're going to become like him. And as we approach him in worship, as you come back here week after week and you're worshiping God, we, with unveiled faces, are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. We are becoming more and more like Jesus Christ the more we face him, the more we worship him. And so consequently, as we become more like the God we worship, our laws, our, our, our judicial understanding are going to become more and more like the character of the God we worship. The same thing is true of the secularists. So... Because Jehovah is holy, what what are his attributes? There are many, but let me mention two. Because Jehovah is holy and he is immutable, this means that laws, based on his word, are also going to be holy and immutable. God is holy, God himself is holy, and so law, based on his character, will be law that is holy and unchanging. At this point of comparison, Demos is the fickle god of the people. Demos is the fickle god of the people. He is unholy, and he is changing all the time. He is unholy, and he changes constantly from one kind of unholiness to another. This shiftiness with regard to character is why secularism wants its authority over definitions to be kept murky and in the background. They don't want to rest too strongly on Demos saith it, and therefore it is so, because... One of us is going to say, what about last year when Dimas said the opposite? Or what, what about 10 years from now when he's going to change his mind again? What, uh, so the Supreme Court has spoken. Roe v. Wade cannot be touched as, the, as though the Supreme Court is the supreme being. And you can say, so was it the supreme being that was speaking in the Dred Scott case in the 19th century? Was that, was that the voice of the supreme being? Well, it's inconsistent. It's changeable. It's mutable. And it's unholy. So, consider the track record of Demos and we can see why they want to keep things vague. Remember what Chesterton said in this regard. Quote, this is a wonderful, glorious statement. Chesterton hits the bullseye so many times. Definitions are very dreadful things. Definitions are very dreadful things. They do the two things that most men, especially comfortable men, cannot endure. They fight and they fight fair. Definitions fight, and definitions fight fair, and comfortable men cannot endure this. This vagueness is why some people who don't understand what is going on will say things like, uh, politicians particularly, I'm pro-life except in cases of rape or incest. All right, what what you're doing is you're standing in front of a microphone that is on, and you're saying, I want the American people to understand that I have no clue what's going on in this debate. <laughs> I want you to know, whatever else happens, I'm going to vote pro-life, but that I don't have any idea of what I'm talking about. That's what, that's what the phrase, I'm pro-life, except in cases of rape and incest, means. Before you talk about rape or incest, we have to settle how many persons are involved in the situation. Before you talk about rape or incest, you have to say, how many people are we talking about? How many persons are we talking about? Two or three? Are there two people or three people? If there are three, father, mother, and baby, if there are three people involved, father, mother, and baby, then what kind of sense does it make to execute one of the two innocent victims for the crime of the father? What kind of sense does that make? The rape and incest clause, exception, only makes sense if you've already granted the authority of Demos to bestow or not bestow personhood. So the politician who says, I can be pressured to go in a pro-life direction, but I want you to know that my heart is with, my heart is with those other guys. My heart, I'm, I'm granting them authority to determine, but I'm going to, because of pressure, I'm going to go this direction. So in other words, we must do the theology of personhood first. We must have our theology straight first. We must. God is the one who gives us life. God is the one who defines life. God is the one who gives, grants us personhood. God is the one who created us in his image. And so consequently, we must listen to him. So let me... Um, give a modest suggestion. Pro-lifers are accustomed to speak of the sanctity of human life. Every year, there's a Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, for example. But because of the issues mentioned earlier, I would like to offer a way for us to improve on this and to make our meaning uh, more clear in a murky situation. So instead of talking about the sanctity of human life, we, we ought to be talking about the sanctity of God's law and the consequent dignity of human life. Human life does not provide the standard. Human life is what the standard, given to Moses on Mount Sinai, protects. Human life is what the standard protects. Human life doesn't generate the standard for us. If we make human life itself the standard, then we have to spend time explaining why we are against abortion, but support capital punishment, right? So if human life is the standard, and killing a criminal is undeniably the taking of a human life, Someone's gonna say on the pro-abortion side, isn't that inconsistent? Well, it is inconsistent if human life is the standard. But the standard is God's law. This objection can be answered. We oppose executing innocents who have not been given a trial, which is not inconsistent with support of the execution of guilty people who have been given a trial. And then the person says, guilt, innocence. These are strange words. Tell Tell me more about this religion of yours. But it's just cleaner and easier to sidestep it. Now, it's not wrong, let me hasten to add, it's not wrong to understand that human life does have a derivative form of sanctity. Put put, um, quotation marks around sanctity. We are created in the image of God, after all. We are created in the image of God. And forgiven and redeemed sinners are called saints or holy ones. Human life can bear the sacred. But this, does not, but this just means that we are bearers or carriers of sanctity. We are not the generators of it. We don't generate sanctity. All, all holiness comes from God. Once we settle these matters in our minds, there are other remaining questions, of course, in our pro-life activism. Should we be incrementalists or abolitionists? <coughs> we have no time to delve into that. But we can say that the one thing we must not be is mission-drift pro-lifers. We must not be mission-drift pro-lifers or discouraged pro-lifers or lame pro-lifers. And the way to keep that from happening is always to anchor your convictions to the gospel of Christ, crucified and risen. And that's how this ties in. Unbelieving man cannot reach God in order to fight against him. But he would if he could. We can't reach Christ on his throne to topple him, but if we could, we would do it. Failing that, like a rebel who cannot overthrow a hated king in a distant castle, he burns the king's effigy in his own village, an image of the detested king that he can reach. He can't reach the king, but he can reach the effigy. Small children bear that image, and they are defenseless. They are within reach, and they bear the image of God. The contrary way, the gospel way, is also true. We love the image of God, in even the most helpless of our fellow men. And this is how we show our love for Christ, who is the ultimate image of the ultimate God. Now, there's a whole world packed into this, but in 2 Corinthians 5, it says, we don't consider, let me just read that, 2 Corinthians 5, it's a glorious passage, verse 16. uh, Paul says that we used to consider we used to think of people as just people, you know, that's all. And he says, Wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh. We don't see anyone after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. We used to think of Christ after the flesh, but we don't do that anymore. And consequently, because we don't view Christ after the flesh anymore, we don't view any man. After the flesh. So the issue is, one of the reasons why the pro-life endeavor has not been as potent as it ought to have been is that there has been too little of Christ in it. We, we need to see Christ in the unborn child. The reason our fight against same-sex mirage has been has, as impotent as it has been is because we've not seen Christ in it. The, the, every marriage is a proclamation of the gospel, the bride and the bridegroom. Every marriage is a proclamation of gospel truth. And so we ought to look at marriage and see Christ there. We ought to look at an unborn child and see Christ there. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew 25. Inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. So when we stand up for the unborn, we are defending Christ. We are not defending Christ as though he needs our defense, but we are defending him because we love him and we want to stand between the the, the effigy and the people who want to strike at that effigy. So, 1 John 4, verse 2 says this, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? Everything that we do has to be rooted in this. And I'll I'll just finish on this note. Some people are going to say, well, you're dragging your theology into a political issue. You're dragging your theology into a political issue. No, you've dragged your politics into theology. That's what's happened. You've dragged your politics, and your desire to have an alien theology take over, you've dragged that into this area. Whether or not, whether or not you are anything more than meat, bones and protoplasm is a religious issue. You bear the image of God, and that is not so... You can't say you are the end product of a mindless process of evolution, and then on the other hand, you bear the image of God, and then say, well, let's compromise, let's split the difference. There's, there is no way to split that difference. These are... If, we're back on Mount Carmel. If Baal is God, follow him. All right, if Darwin is true, follow that, but follow it to the end, and the end is the outer darkness. If, if Jehovah is God, then follow him, and that way is the way of Christ. So what we want to do is we want to be pro-life, not because we are traditional value people. We don't want to be pro-life because we're politically conservative. We want to be pro-life because we love the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to stand for marriage because we love the Lord Jesus If you don't love the Lord Jesus, everything you do in this realm is going to be impotent. Everything we do is going to fall to the ground. But if we love the Lord Jesus and are empowered by his gospel, forgiven by his gospel, and empowered by his spirit, then we can take a stand and take a stand in a way that makes a difference. Our Father and God, we thank you for what you've given to us in your word. I pray that you would help us to understand it more fully. I pray that you'd help us to internalize it, get it down into our bones. Amen.
1: A baby is born hungry. No one needs to teach a baby about hunger. And so it is that those who've been born again are also born hungry. This is what we might call a holy hunger. In many ways, coming to Christ satisfies so many things. Outside of Christ, everything is barren and dry, and so everything looks like food. This is essentially what idolatry is. It tries to turn the gifts of God into gods, which is to say it's basically trying to turn various gifts into food that aren't really food. Marriage is not your food. It's a gift. Children are not your food. They're gifts. Good health is not your food. It's a gift. Respect is not your food. Success is not your food. But when you're starving, everything looks edible and it can give short-term relief to the gnawing in your gut but it's not really feeding you it's not really giving you your life but when you come to Christ you find your hunger satisfied and yet that doesn't mean you're done eating when you come to Christ you actually find that you have more of an appetite than ever before and this is by design God wants you to grow blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled but that's also why this is a continual feast. We hunger for God's wisdom and goodness and righteousness and he gives it and we are filled and we're always hungry for more. Not hungry in a desperate dying way, hungry in that pleasantly surprised sense that you can have another piece of pie and you really won't regret it. So this table is set for the hungry. If you've been away for a long time, and you've been feeding on other things. As a minister of the gospel, I invite you back, back to the table of the Lord, to eat real food here by coming to Christ by faith. And if you've been coming week after week, you too are most welcome. It's real food, and so of course you want more. Of course you need more. You've just fed on the word preached, now feed on the word broken and poured out. Turn to Christ, surrender to him, Thank him, praise him, read his word, feast on his word. You've been born again, and you were born again hungry. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. In the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and gave thanks. So let's give thanks together. Our God and Father, we praise you and we thank you that you created us hungry, and you've recreated us hungry. We thank you that you've given us not only an appetite, but you've given us food. Father, thank you that you made us for yourself and that you are here and you offer yourself to us freely. Give us faith so that we might feast. And so we give thanks in Jesus' name, amen. In this world, in this day, when you see the news headlines, when you see people saying the horrific things they say about abortion, celebrating the murder of the unborn, it can feel entirely like there's nothing we can do. And you need to remember two things. Number one, remember Jesus already won and he won this battle. He rose up triumphant over abortion along with our sin and all evil. And secondly, because he did that and because you have been born again in him, now you've been, you've been set free to be on that mission with him, bringing that life to this world. And you do that every day as you see Christ in one another. The most pro-life thing you can do is love your wife. The most pro-life thing you can do is love your children The most pro-life thing you can do is honor your father and your mother, love your neighbor as yourself, work hard. Why? Because you're seeing Christ in them. And as you see Christ in them, you are bringing life to the world. So go now with the blessing of your living, living and risen Savior. Pray the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all and remain with you in your hearts forever and ever. Amen.